few names associated with the Old West are as recognizable as Wild Bill Hickok, and for good reason. In many ways, Wild Bill was the quintessential Westerner of the latter 19th century. Wagon master, scout, soldier, spy, lawman, gambler, actor, and yeah, gunfighter. A man capable of extraordinary feats of daring and bravery, yet courteous and soft-spoken when left alone, and kind to children. One of the few frontiersmen who was willing to take his guns off and go toe-to-toe with anyone looking for a fight, but also a man who, even by generous accounts, was a bit too quick when it came to pulling a trigger. He could cuss like a sailor, consorted with ladies of ill repute, and would rather gamble than eat. Haycock was friends with other notable frontiersmen like Buffalo Bill Cody, General George Armstrong Custer, Kit Carson, and Calamity Jane. And he inspired future legends of law enforcement like U.S. Marshal Bill Tillman and countless others. A celebrity in his own time, Hickok continues to tickle the imagination of millions. From the early silent film era until now, everybody from Gary Cooper, Charles Bronson, Jeff Bridges, Sam Elliott, and Keith Carradine have portrayed this icon on the big screen. But who was Hickok really? What sort of man was he? As with many notorious characters of the Old West, much of the legend is built on exaggerated claims and outright lies. Fortunately, in Hickok's case, the truth is even more fascinating than fiction. And the truth is what we are aiming for today. So brush out your hair, tighten that sash, and relinquish all aces and eights. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. James Butler Hickok was brought into this world on May 27, 1839 in Homer, Illinois. A farm and family by trade, Father William Alonzo and Mother Polly Butler were also ardently anti-slavery, even to the point of opening up their home to the Underground Railroad. When the senior Hickok wasn't hiding runaway slaves in the family cellar, he would take part in nighttime rides, whisking the refugees from one safe house to another. Dangerous actions that young James and his brothers would occasionally take part in as well. At least they would until their father passed away from a lingering illness in May of 1852. 15-year-old Hickok, in addition to working a plow, was then given the chief responsibility of putting meat on the dinner table. A task that saw James spend long hours in the woods stalking and hunting up what wild game he could find. Everything from squirrels to rabbits and venison while at the same time cultivating an ease and familiarity with firearms that would serve him well throughout his life. And when any spare time was found, James would also hire himself out as a laborer on neighboring farms, anything to help the family make ends meet. Ah, but the farm can't hold the boy forever, especially not one with such an inherent sense of adventure. By the age of 17, James Butler was itching to spread his wings, and I can't say as I blame him. Older brother Oliver had already headed west to California, and Hickok was thinking maybe he'd join him. After all, there was a big, exciting world out there waiting, and this was the height of the California gold rush. Still, though, remaining brothers, Lorenzo and Horace, talked James out of it. Said maybe it would be better for him to stick around for a little bit, another year or so, at least until they could get their mama and sisters more settled. So Hickok did the next best thing, went and got him a job working on a canal in Utica, Illinois a career that ended abruptly when he got into it with his boss and threw the man in said canal. Word on the streets is the guy was a little too cruel to his livestock to suit James Butler. Now you may have heard or read that this was the event that spurred Hickok West, that he fled Illinois mistakenly thinking he had killed his employer. This more than likely is not true. Uh, turns out there's quite a bit of misinformation out there on old Wild Bill Hickok. 
Much of it is own doing. Seems that Bill got sort of a perverse joy in sharing the most outrageous tales he could think of, and oftentimes these stories found their way to print. Most notably, an 1867 Harper's New Monthly Magazine article written by George Ward Nichols. We'll discuss this more in a bit, but essentially this write-up made Wild Bill. Caused him to become a household name both at home and abroad. To become a legend in his own time and brace yourself, it was mostly all lies. And not even the believable kind of lies. We're talking brushy Bill Roberts levels of fabrication here. Whether or not these fantastical stories actually came from Hickok himself, as the aforementioned Nichols asserted, is up for debate. As is Hickok's motivation. You know, even as a child, he was prone to quote-unquote leg pulling and practical jokes, so there's always that. Like I said, more on this Harper's piece later on, just keep in mind that Wild Bill was very culpable in creating his own legend. A strong runner-up, however, would be an author by the name of James W. Buell. His off-sided books, The Life and Marvelous Adventures of Wild Bill and Heroes of the Plains, were partly based on Hickok's diary, which Buell claimed to have obtained from Bill's widow, Agnes. Emphasis on the word claimed. As of this recording, no such diary has been located or even proven to have ever existed. Matter of fact, at least two of Hickok's own family members, a brother and an uncle, both said that they did not believe there ever was such a journal. Consequently, and in lieu of a diary, much of the disinformation on Hickok does seem to stem from the imagination of Buell. Like the recently mentioned idea of him fleeing Illinois after mistakenly thinking he killed a man. Now I know that's a relatively tame story, but trust me, there's some real whoppers in there. Some of which we will touch on as this episode progresses. Likewise, you had Hickok biographer William E. Connolly who wasn't shy about saying that he preferred to forego implications of callousness, cruelty, and selfishness, and to publish more flattering accounts of Wild Bill, thus further contributing to the legend. And finally, there's the fact that there were many other Wild Bills that were active on the frontier around the same time. About 32 at last count, per author and foremost Hickok expert, Joseph G. Rosa. All of this, of course, just equates to there being more than a few tall tales as far as James Butler Hickok is concerned. Bearing that in mind, going forward, you'll hear me offer up a few different versions of certain events, some of them in direct contradiction with one another. But as usual, I will at least attempt to separate fact from fiction. All right, now that we've got that established, let's get back to the story. Young Hickok would finally leave home in June of 1856 at 19 years of age, with older brother Lorenzo. The two headed off on foot bound for Kansas with intentions to get the family set up on a homestead. Plans were altered in St. Louis, however, when the duo received word that their mother was sick. Lorenzo gave Bill what money he had and sent the youngster on to Kansas without him and straight into the damn history books. Bill initially arrived at Leavenworth, Kansas, but soon found his way to the no longer existing town of Monticello, near present-day Shawnee, Kansas. When exactly he made this move, I was not able to ascertain, but it was likely sometime in late 1856 or early 57. Initially struggling to find work and determined not to spend any of his family's money on himself, James set out earning his keep the same way he did back home, laboring behind a plow for another man's crops. Weren't too long, though, before Hickok became associated with James Henry Lane and his free state movement. Now, I have discussed James Lane before on this podcast way back on the Bloody Bill Anderson episode. I also spoke quite a bit about something known as Bleeding Kansas. Both topics go hand in hand and both had a very strong influence on Hickok. So we might as well do a quick recap, Rot Meow. 
Just a quick one, though. If you'd like a more in-depth explanation, please check out that Bloody Bill Anderson episode. I will link to it in the show notes. Okay, so even four decades prior to the beginning of the Civil War, the rapidly expanding United States was already bitterly divided over the issue of slavery. Those in opposition didn't want the so-called peculiar institutions spreading to any newly formed states. Those in favor wanted said states, like Missouri, to have the option of choosing for themselves. Hence the Missouri Compromise, which Congress passed in 1820. This act of legislation admitted Missouri into the Union as a slave state and Maine as a free state, while at the same time prohibiting slavery in any remaining Louisiana Purchase lands north of the 3630 parallel, you know, like Kansas. This compromise would be effectively repealed over three decades later when Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 just a couple of years before Hickok arrived on the scene. Both states were, at that time, still territories, but they had their eyes on joining the Union. With the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the new states could basically choose for themselves as far as the slavery issue was concerned. This ushered in the era known as Bleeding Kansas. Both pro- and anti-slavery factions flocked to the future state hoping to sway the vote one way or another. And as they began clashing, things progressively became more and more violent. Between the years of 1854 and 1859 alone, there were at least 56 documented political killings and possibly as many as 200. Enter in James H. Lane, a commander during the Mexican-American War and former U.S. congressman. Lane relocated to Kansas in 1855 and immediately got balls deep in the abolitionist movement. As such, he formed the so-called Free State Army, sort of an anti-slavery militia group that would later come to be known as the Jayhawkers. And it was James Lane and his Free Staters that recruited a young yet accurate AF with a firearm, James Butler Hickok. At least a couple of accounts state that Hickok earned his way into the militia after winning first place in the shooting competition. In what capacity he served, however, is not fully known, at least not by me. Uh, Hickok would write many a letter back home to his family, and in some of them he hinted at the troubles there in Kansas. In one letter, dated November of 1856, Hickok referenced both the Battle of Hickory Point, which pitted Lane's Jayhawkers against a pro-slavery group, and the massacre of Potawatomi, which involved John Brown. Now, it does not appear that James was a direct participant in either event, but it is clear he was a big supporter of both Lane and Brown. During this same period, Hickok had become very close friends with another free stater, guy by the name of John M. Owen. Per one quote-unquote old-timer's recollection, Hickok seemed to be lacking any type of particular occupation when he started palling around with Owen and, quote, principally spending his time and having a good time with the boys and astonishing them with his dexterity in hitting targets with his pistol, end quote. Evidence suggests that Hickok rode with Lane and his Jayhawkers for the better part of a year, and possibly both he and friend Owen became Lane's personal bodyguards. Whether or not that's true... Your guess is as good as mine. Like I said, I was not able to find any particular actions that Hickok participated in as a member or associate of the Free State Army. Other than him allegedly serving as Lane's bodyguard, I could only find references to James scouting for the Free Staters, whatever that would entail. He would, however, pick up work with the actual U.S. military in the fall of 1857. It seems that the army was advancing on Utah, some 2,500 troops strong, in order to quell a rumored Mormon rebellion. It takes a lot of wagons to supply over 2,000 troops, and wagons need drivers, one of which was James Hickok. 
He signed on with the ill-fated Lou Simpson wagon train with someone else you may have heard of, a then just 11-year-old William Frederick Cody, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill. And yeah, you heard me correctly, he was 11. Bill's father Isaac died in April of that year, and Cody, now the man of the house, had to start earning a living at a very young age. Took a job with a freighting company as a so-called boy extra, riding up and down the wagon trains, delivering messages between the Teamsters and laborers, which is how he met Hickok. Legend has it that James actually intervenes, saving Cody from getting his ass stomped by an older, much larger man, thus solidifying a friendship that would last a lifetime. Now, Brigham Young wasn't too happy with the army coming for him like that. He ordered his militia to stop soaking for the time being, double up on that magic underwear, and go meet the aggressors head on, bloodlessly if possible. Just so happens Hickok's small wagon train was one of their targets. When it was all said and done, the Mormons burned 26 of the wagons and stampeded a whole bunch of stock, without shedding any blood as far as I know. Papers at the time would report that the Teamsters, Hickok among them, made no defense or resistance whatsoever. Guess they figured they weren't getting paid enough to quarrel with a bunch of crazy-ass Mormons. By the way, if you are a Mormon, relax, I'm just uh, messing around. I've met quite a few of y'all over the years, and hands down, Mormons are some of the nicest people I've ever known. Crazy history, but very nice people, and they make some very wonderful neighbors. All right, back to it. Now, this incident occurred in October of 1857 near the present-day town of Farson, Wyoming, just to give you an idea of how far west Hickok was traveling even back then. By March of 58, James was back in Monticello, where he got himself elected as village constable, which, take my word on this, is much better than being elected the village idiot. Hickok also took up more farming work on the side, filed on some land all of his own, over 100 acres, and somehow even found time to fall in love. Ah, young love. The lady in question was Mary Owen, the daughter of fellow free stater and previously mentioned friend, John Owen. Things were heating up quickly and there was even talk of marriage, but unfortunately that was not to be. You see, Mary was what was known in those days as a half-breed, her mother being full-blooded Shawnee. And when Hickok's family in Illinois found out about this relationship, they soon sent brother Lorenzo to Kansas to, air quotes, talk some sense into their wayward sibling. And sadly, Hickok listened. He abruptly ended the relationship, sold his homestead, and even moved some 40-odd miles away back to Leavenworth. All because the poor girl just wasn't wide enough. Just a sad sign of the times, especially considering how involved with the abolitionist movement the Hickok family was. I guess freedom was one thing, but maybe equality was just a step too far. Gotta wonder how Mary must have felt. Seemed like such a sweet girl, too. Even made James cut off a lock of his hair to send to his mother, knowing that she'd be happy to have such a memento. And I gotta wonder if Bill ever thought of Mary again. Also, what if they had married? You know, would there have been a wild Bill Hickok as we know him? I mean, he would have likely still served in the upcoming Civil War. Everybody did. But what about after? Would he have settled down on the farm there in Monticello, raised a passel of kids? Or would his innate sense of adventure and wanderlust get the better of him either way? I don't know, just something to ponder. Once back in Leavenworth, Hickok signed on with the Russell, Waddle, and Majors Company, hauling freight and driving stagecoaches. An oftentimes dangerous job that saw James travel as far west as Santa Fe, where he possibly became acquainted with the legendary Kit Carson. He also began driving freight to Colorado and back. 
Now, if the name Russell, Waddle, and Majors sounds familiar, it's because they went on to form the famous Pony Express in April of 1860. And contrary to popular belief, Hickok was not one of their riders. He was just too dang big and tall. Still, though, Hickok would often work around or with the Pony Express riders, like his young friend Buffalo Bill, even helping them to retrieve some horses stolen by hostile natives near the Powder River. Now, James was actually said to be the leader of this bunch, and it was him who came up with the idea to wait until dark and rush the camp. They did so, screaming and hollering and making a racket, and they were successful in not only getting their stolen nags back, but a couple hundred Indian ponies to boot. Interesting side note, another stage employee and very dangerous man, Jack Slade, might have also participated in retrieving the stolen horses. He for sure was at the celebration afterwards when he got into an argument with another teamster, resulting in Slade shooting the man dead. Definitely got to do an episode on old Jack Slade sometime in the future. Now this is also around the time that Hickok came out on top in a fight with a damn cinnamon bear. Or at least that's according to author James W. Buell. Remember him? Evidently, Bill was hauling freight somewhere between Kansas and Santa Fe when he came upon a mama bear and her cubs blocking the road. He tried shooing them away, but to no avail. Eventually, he dismounted and approached on foot, which is never a good idea unless you have a much slower person with you. The mama bear did what mama bears do and attacked the tall, long-haired, bipedal creature approaching her little ones. Hickok managed to get off a couple of shots, one of which actually ricocheted off the bear's skull before she got a hold of him, nearly crushing him to death. Locked in this death struggle, Bill was somehow able to get to his knife, which he used to sever the beast's jugular. And once again, I gotta ask, did this really happen? Probably not. Uh, while there is ample evidence to suggest Hickok was badly injured in late 1860 or early 1861, and while it may have possibly been at the hands of an angry bear, the idea that Hickok killed this bear in hand-to-hand -hand combat is almost certainly the imaginative writings of James Buell. But like I said, something, possibly a bear mauling, did occur. Hickok was put out of commission for a few months, bedridden, and once he was able to move around a bit, he got put on light duty and sent to Rock Creek Station, just north of present-day Fairbury, Nebraska, which is a very weird word to pronounce. Fairbury. Alright, now this Rock Creek was a dispatch station that initially was just being rented by Russell, Waddle, and Majors. The land it sat on was owned by a guy named David McCandless, or often mistakenly called McCandles. Now, McCandless was a former lawman from North Carolina with a bit of a rough reputation. And when he formed his own ranch there at Rock Creek, he moved his mistress in just across the way, much to his wife's great displeasure. By all accounts, the man was a bit of a bully, and he and Hickok just did not hit it off from the get-go. Remember, Bill was still on the mend. He was walking with a limp, and one of his arms was next to useless when he first arrived. Like I said, light duty, just cleaning out stables, that sort of stuff. Evidently, McCandless liked teasing the younger man, calling him Duck Bill on account of his long nose and protruding lips, and on one occasion even playfully wrestling with Hickok and tossing the injured man down a little too hard on his back. All in good fun, but the only thing was, Hickok wasn't laughing. And on July 12, 1861, he expressed his displeasure by shooting McCandless deader than hell. How and why this killing occurred is somewhat a bit of a mystery. Remember what I said earlier about various events having more than one version? Well, this is one of them. That said, let's go with the most fun account first. This one comes from Hickok himself, 
a few years later when he was interviewed by that journalist, George Nichols. McCandless, in this version, was the captain of a gang of desperados, all of them on the run from a damn hangman's noose. A southern sympathizer, McCandless tried to sway Hickok over to his side and even convinced the young man to hand over the station's stock to his brood of bandits. Hickok rebuked the man, so McCandless then had it in for him. Also, according to Hickok, Bill had previously bested McCandless at both shooting and wrestling matches, so I guess there was also some jealousy and bruised ego issues. One day, Hickok pays a visit to the relay station there at Rock Creek. In this account, he's working as a scout with the military as opposed to just a station employee. Anyway, he stops in to visit the superintendent, Horace Wellman, only to be warned by Wellman's wife that McCandless was looking to kill him. And not only that, but he had nine henchmen with him, and they was armed to the teeth. To which Hickok replied, there's two that can play at that game. The words were barely out of his mouth when the canless crew show up, dragging a local preacher on the ground with a rope around his neck like a bunch of damn comic book villains. Surround the house, boys, and give no quarter. McCandless ordered his men, prompted Hickok to quickly pull an old hawk and rifle down off the wall. That and his lone pistol would be his only means of defense, as this was before he took to carry in the pair of six shooters. Now, I don't know how you are with math, but one revolver and an old hawk and rifle only comes out to seven shots. And there was ten very bad men about ready to put Hickok under. Oh no, whatever shall he do? Fight like hell, that's what. As soon as the outlaws breached the house, Hickok fired that hawking, then tossed it aside and thumbed back the hammer on that old Navy Colt. One, two, three, four men fell dead at his feet before the others were able to rush him. He knocks one dude down with his fist before getting peppered with birdshot from another scattergun. Then three of them hop on him all at once. Oh shit, time to go into berserker mode. He breaks one guy's arm before, in his words, quote, Then I got ugly. I got hold of a knife, and then it was all cloudy-like, and I was wild, and I struck savage blows, following the devils up from one side of the room to the other, and into the corners, striking and slashing until I knew that every one of them was dead. End quote. All right, like I said, that's Hickok's own version, the one he supposedly shared with that journalist. Now, if true, that would be one impressive fight. The only problem is it is totally and utterly a big pile of BS. Here's the thing. First of all, McCandless may have had a bad reputation, but he was no outlaw. The guy was a rancher and a landowner who, as previously stated, actually owned the property where the station was located. And while it's true that he and Hickok just did not get along from the very beginning, McCandless's real beef was with the Rock Creek Station superintendent, Horace Wellman. You see, the freight and company decided to go ahead and buy the station outright instead of just renting it. They paid a lump sum to McCandless, promising the balance in regular payments. Problem was, them payments were too dang slow in coming. So McCandless started getting kind of vocal, wanting to know where his money was. Got so bad that Wellman actually had to travel and go speak with his bosses, leaving Hickok in charge. Now up until then, Bill had been staying in a little nearby dugout. In Wellman's absence, however, he moved into the station with Mrs. Wellman and a young lady by the name of Sarah Scholl, the aforementioned mistress and not-so-secret side piece of David McCandless. As you can imagine, McCandless wasn't too pleased to see how well Hickok and Sarah was getting along. When he showed up for his daily Where's My Money tirade, he couldn't help but notice how close the two was getting. Full disclosure, there has yet to be anything proven between Hickok and Sarah. But while Bill was a bit of a ladies' man, and it's only natural that McCandless would get jealous. Finally, Wellman returns, and McCandless once again shows up looking for his money, only this time he's not alone. 
He's got two cousins of his, a James Wood and a James Gordon, as well as his 12-year-old son, Monroe. Wellman goes ahead and breaks the news. Russell, Waddle, and Majors are in deep financial trouble and won't be making a payment anytime soon. Sorry, we're just gonna have to be late. This enrages McCandless. He orders that Wellman come outside and take his ass whooping like a man. And if not, he was coming in to get him. Wellman doesn't appear, and true to his word, McCandless, possibly with a shotgun in hand, then enters into the station only to see Hickok stepping behind a curtain that kind of divided the room. Not liking that one bit, David tells Hickok to come out from behind there or he'd drag him out. To which Hickok replies, there'll be one less son of a bitch when you try that. I gotta remember that line. Uh, all of a sudden, a single shot rings out. The bullet striking McCandless in the chest. He stumbles outside and falls to the ground, dead. By this point, the other two men, Woods and Gordon, they run up and get shot as well, both of them hit by Hickok's revolver. Woods collapses into a weed patch outside as an enraged Mrs. Wellman runs out with a grubbing hoe screaming like a wild woman, kill him, kill them all, and commences in raining down blows on the wounded Wood, finishing the man off. Gordon actually made it a few hundred yards away before two other stage employees, uh, Doc Brink and George Holbert, caught up with him and dispatched him with a shotgun. Only McCandless's son survived, and likely it was his youth and his youth alone that saved him from this massacre. Now, if you're a little bit confused, you're not alone. First off, nobody knows to a certainty that it was indeed Hickok who shot McCandless. I mean, Superintendent Wellman absolutely had the motivation, and he was McCandless's main target. It is worth pointing out, however, that the mistress, Sarah Scholl, was later interviewed in 1927 at the age of 93. She claimed that Hickok was the one that pulled the trigger, but he did so in self-defense. Also, you know, even in Hickok's outlandish version, he admits to killing McCandless, only in a much more exciting and honorable fashion. So I think it's pretty safe to say it was Hickok who did McCandless in, just like he shot Woods and Gordon. The big question then is, why? And was McCandless even armed? What sudden movement or aggressive action, if any, did he take that prompted Hickok to shoot first? Now, if this really was self-defense, then that would kind of depend on one's definition of self-defense. I'm reminded of the HBO series Deadwood, in which Wild Bill shoots a man in a saloon. The fictional scene depicts Tom Mason filling up on liquid courage before slowly approaching Hickok. When he's just a few feet away, Bill, who was already fully aware of the threat, shucks his pistol quick as lightning and plugs Mason in the gut. The man's gun never left the holster, Mr. Hickok, a fellow patron protest, to which Bill simply replies, he meant me harm. And he did. We as the audience knew this, and so did this fictional version of Wild Bill. He was defending himself, and I guess the idea was, why wait for the would-be assassin to actually pull his own revolver? You know, why give him any sort of an edge? Now remember, that scene was all made up, but it does sort of put things there at Rock Creek into perspective. It was a very tense real-life situation, and I think we can assume that at very least Hickok felt somewhat threatened. And like I asked before, what did McCandless do, or what did Hickok think he did, that caused him to pull the trigger first? We'll likely never know. The guy who played Tom Mason on Deadwood, by the way, the actor, that's Nick Offerman, the same guy who played Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. He can be seen earlier in that same episode of Deadwood, running amok in a whorehouse with his quote-unquote branding iron firmly in hand. Alright, so justifiable or not, Hickok was put on trial for the killing of all three men there at Rock Creek, as were Doc Brink and Holbert. Testimony was heard even from McCandless's young son. 
According to him, neither one of the cousins were armed, and it was, I believe, even debated whether or not McCandless had that shotgun when he confronted Wellman and Hickok. According to author Joseph Rosa, quote, the trial literally collapsed, and by the time any further attempts at justice were made by the McCandless family, Hickok had left the state, end quote. One last thought on this fight. I think there was a lot that occurred that you and I aren't privy to. Just the whole thing with Mrs. Wellman running out and killing that one guy with a damn grubbin' hoe. The way those other two station employees chased after Gordon and, without hesitation, gunned him down. A situation like this doesn't just explode spontaneously. There had to have been a lot of serious tension built up over the previous couple of months, right? Also, I don't think McCandless showed up looking to get in no gunfight. I mean, why bring his 12-year-old son along if that was the case? Now, I know 12-year-olds were a lot different back in those days, but in several accounts from the actual time period, Monroe McCandless's age is specifically pointed out. Everybody knew he was just a kid and had no involvement. What it all boils down to, I think, is just one of those situations where you got to read between the lines. One thing I didn't mention was that it wasn't just Russell Waddle and Majors who owed McCandless money. There was like a total of three different companies in debt to the man, and he was probably getting a little bit impatient. That said, I don't think patience was his strong point. McCandless was a hothead, quick to anger, and a bit of a bully. I think maybe there was a history of him throwing his weight around more timid souls than he, like that Superintendent Wellman. Maybe McCandless got a little too comfortable making threats he shouldn't have been making, especially not around a man like Hickok. Then there's the issue with Sarah Scholl and Hickok. Whether or not the two were romantically involved doesn't matter so much as whether or not McCandless suspected them of being involved. So I don't know, what do you think? Justifiable or was Hickok being a little bit too trigger happy? Was this murder or simply a case of self-defense? And what about those other two men? Josh at WildWestExtra.com Hit me up, I'd be interested in knowing your thoughts on the situation, especially if you've ever worked in law enforcement. Now that particular killing took place in mid-July 1861. The bloody civil war was just getting started and Hickok, now fully healed from that possible bear attack, was ready, willing, and able to go serve his country. And of course, as with much of Bill's life, his war record is also riddled with tall tales, inaccuracies, and a whole lot of lies. With that in mind, I apologize in advance for the maybes and possiblies you're about to hear. I can't, in all good conscience, just sit here and repeat the legend. There's plenty of that out there already. I gotta at least try to separate the fact from the fiction, and what you're about to hear is my humble attempt at doing so. Okay, so we know Hickok, shortly after the McCandless killing, enlisted with the Union Army as a civilian scout and likely participated in the Battle of Wilson's Creek in August of 1861, a Confederate victory. Two months later, Bill would be found working as an Army wagon master out of Sedalia, Missouri, a job that he would continue throughout the winter and into spring before being promoted to assistant quartermaster in late June of 1862. This is possibly when he first earned the nickname Wild Bill. And surprise, surprise, there is more than one version of how that handle came into being. One has it that while on a brief stopover in Independence, Missouri, Hickok prevented the lynching of a bartender, single-handedly staring down a mob while doing so. As they began dispersing, a woman standing in the crowd yelled out, Good for you, Wild Bill. And the name just kind of stuck. Now this is the account that Hickok himself would later claim. Another story goes that it was Bill's brother Lorenzo who prevented the lynching. This time, it was an innocent man accused of stealing horses. Lorenzo stepped in and said that the mob could have the accused over his dead body, to which, once again, a woman yells out from the crowd, this time hollering, My God, ain't he wild? 
And somehow or another, this nickname got passed down to Bill, who, by the way, wasn't even named Bill or William. So when the hell did that happen? Once again, a couple of different versions. One is that Hickok simply took on his father's name. Not too much of a stretch, as Bill would also use the last name Haycock and even Hitchcock in his early years. Also, evidently brother Lorenzo had acquired the nickname Billy Barnes as a child. People often called both brothers Bill, with Hickok being known as Shanghai Bill, on account of his lean, tall frame. Which leads us to the third version, as far as the Wild Bill nickname goes. The one that, to me, has the most ring of truth to it. A contemporary of Hickok, George Hans, said that since Lorenzo was so meek and mild-mannered, they called him Tame Bill and our Hickok Wild Bill, just simply as a way to differentiate between the two. So take your pick. Whatever the genesis, Hickok would be known by Wild Bill for the rest of his life. All right, so it appears that Bill's employment as a wagon master ended in September of 62. Following this, he may have seen action at Pea Ridge as either a scout or a courier. Legend has it that Hickok took up a position among the Union sharpshooters, and it was his rifle that fired the shot that killed Confederate General Benjamin McCulloch, which is not true. As we now know, it was a private from the 36th Illinois with the peculiar name of Peter Pelican, which lends the question. If peculiar private Peter Pelican picked off a particular officer, how many officers of that particular variety could peculiar private Peter Pelican pick off? No? All right, let's just forget that happened. Uh, according to Hickok, he at some point enlisted with 8th Missouri State Militia. No documentation has been discovered as of yet to back this claim up, but the 8th Missouri did provide scouts and spies to infiltrate behind Confederate lines. And it turns out that's exactly what Wild Bill did. At least probably. By his own account, Hickok spent at least five months with the rebels, infiltrating General Price's army as he pretended to be a man named Barnes from Texas. Needless to say, this would have been quite the dangerous assignment. Had Johnny Reb caught on that Hickok was really a damn Yankee, they'd have killed him without hesitation. As it were, he barely escaped. When the time came to make his getaway during what was probably the Battle of Westport in 1864, Hickok stated that he did so under a hell of Confederate gunfire, plunging he and his horse into the river where they made a mad swim for the Union lines. It were the hottest bath I ever took, Hickok later recounted. By March of 1864 and throughout the summer, Bill was employed as a special policeman and detective in Springfield, Missouri. A detail that found him doing such mundane tasks as keeping count of how many soldiers in uniform were drinking at any one given time and even checking the liquor licenses of various hotels. Not quite as exciting as being a spy, but hey, a paycheck's a paycheck, right? There are a few stories about Hickok joining up with the Kansas Redlegs during the war, aka the bad guys from the outlaw Josie Wells. He's also alleged to have served with a bunch known as the Buckskin Scouts, who were sort of a Union version of Quantrell's Raiders. Headed by former Pony Express rider William Sloan Tough, the Buckskins were an independent group of guerrilla fighters who were totally separate from the Redlegs, although the two oftentimes get lumped in together. As far as Hickok, these claims that he served with either group are unsubstantiated, although it is very likely that he knew members of both, especially considering that Tough had ridden for the Pony Express. By February of 65, Hickok was back doing more scouting-type work, observing enemy positions there in southern Missouri, Arkansas, and even in Indian Territory. And of course, General Robert E. Lee would surrender a couple of months later, thus effectively ending the war, or at least Hickok's involvement. 
He was 28 years old and just survived the deadliest conflict this nation had ever known. An accomplished killer, no doubt, but certainly not a famous man. At least not yet. That would soon change. And it all began in Springfield, Missouri, during an argument over cards with a former friend named Davis Casey Tut. Now, once again, there are a few different versions of what caused the rift between these two guys. To quote Jimmy Buffett, some people claim there was a woman to blame. One in particular named Susanna Moore. One of the more fanciful tales of Wild Bill's exploits as a soldier describes the rescuing of two damsels in distress from the clutches of crazed confederates one of which was this Susanna lady. Evidently, she and Hickok stayed in touch in more ways than one, and she joined him in Springfield after the war. They soon got crossways of each other for whatever reason, and word has it, she then took up with Tut. Ouch. That always stings, right? I mean, whatever happened to bros before hoes? And what do you do when a friend of yours starts messing around with your girl, even your ex-girl? You fuck his sister, that's what. Hey, don't look at me like that. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying it's the Hickok thing to do. Per the word on the streets, Hickok began seeing Tut's sister an illicit relationship that possibly saw a child being born out of wedlock. But that's none of my business. Whatever happened, the two became at odds with one another to the point that Hickok soon refused to even play poker with Davis. A crude insult that prompted Tut to stand closely by, coaching other players on how best to beat Hickok and even staking them the money to do so. This is just what happened on the night of July 20th, 1865. And despite this gross annoyance, Hickok actually cleaned up, winning an estimated $200 or roughly $3,600 in today's money. This prompted Tut to swoop in, claiming that Bill owed him $40 for a horse trade or something along those lines. All right, fair enough. Hickok handed the money over. But Davis wasn't satisfied. He then begins pestering Wild Bill over another 35 owed from a previous card game. Hickok argued it was closer to $25, at which point Tut just walked on over and snatched Bill's prize Waltham pocket watch off the table. Hickok ordered that his former friend put it back, but Davis just sneered and walked on out of the room. Didn't help matters none that Tut had him quite a few friends back in his play, friends that laughed in Hickok's face and even tried to bully him into a fight. Now, supposedly during these days, Bill would often leave his room without strapping on an iron, so he was most definitely outgunned. Still, though, when Tut's buddies started taunting Hickok and told him that Davis would wear his watch in the town square the next day, Bill replied that he probably shouldn't do so unless, quote, dead men can walk, end quote. Now, let me just pause for a second. So far, this is sounding like some real high school shit, right? Like the bully just stole your favorite pin off your desk and now you gotta go fighting behind the bleachers after fourth period just to save face. But in this instance, we're talking about two grown-ass men, both of them pushing 30 years of age and both veterans, taking a silly argument so far that it was about to turn deadly. However, this was a different time. I'll fully admit that losing face or even being perceived as losing face on the frontier back in them days could have deadly consequences. That said, sure enough, the next morning, Tut appeared at the town square, and Hickok was there waiting. Davis pulled some Godfather 2 type shit and said the money now owed was $45, as opposed to the original $35 from the night before. Hickok still remained steadfast on the $25 amount, and both men parted company, unwilling to compromise. A few hours later, they met again. This time, Davis was wearing a long duster with Hickok's pocket watch hanging from it for all to see. Oh boy, here we go. Bill steps forward, Navy Colton hand. He stops about 75 yards away from Tut, 
holsters his iron, and warns Davis not to step another foot into the square. Both men are staring each other down as Tut turns sideways in sort of a dueling stance. All of a sudden, both men go for their guns, both clearing leather and firing at the exact same moment. Onlookers would later remark that both pistols sounded as one. Davis's shot missed, but Hickox did not, his bullet slamming into Tut's heart. Immediately wheeling around, Bill faced Tut's friends, remember them, asking if they weren't satisfied. I reckon they were, seeing as how they quickly handed over their pistols to Hickok. Now this is a very famous showdown, one of the very few stand-in-the-streets, quick-draw type fights that ever even occurred, despite what the movies might say. The only question is, how accurate were the events I just described? First of all, let's take a look at the distance. 75 yards is the official story. Others claimed it was only 50 yards, while some maintained that it was more like 30 or 40. Either way, it's some impressive shooting, and while I personally would struggle to hit a target with a pistol at 75 yards, it is possible. I even found a video of a guy on YouTube, Duelist1954, using an 1851 Navy Colt with period-accurate powder and lead. I'll link to the video in the show notes, but this guy sets up a target at 75 yards, and he was able to hit it several times. Then, just for fun, dude did the same at 100 yards. The thing is, though, to quote Hickok in a future confrontation, that target wasn't shooting back. And I'm not trying to downplay the guy in that video. He was great. But I do think he would probably also agree that things can be totally different in an actual life and death scenario. I'm just not sure how you would recreate that. Other than maybe doing some really strenuous cardio, you know, immediately beforehand. Just getting your heart rate all jacked up, you're breathing heavy. You know, just to somehow simulate the adrenaline rush of an actual fight. Even if the distance was just 40 yards, if it was indeed a quick draw type situation, you know, if Tut was standing sideways and if Hickok hit him straight in the heart with one shot, that's some pretty good shooting. As far as what started the fight, get ready for this. At least one man claims that the pocket watch was just an excuse. And E.C. Maafi, the son of the judge that would soon try Hickok for Tut's murder, claimed that Bill killed Davis over a much more embarrassing incident. Per Maafi, Hickok was losing big time in poker one night, and he asked Tut to loan him some money, and Davis refused. The infuriated Hickok then took the deck of cards and tossed him out the window, saying that if he couldn't play, then nobody could. Davis then pulled his revolver and forced Bill to head downstairs, collect the cards, and bring them back up. And of course, while doing so, he lost all vestige of his wild persona. Maffey asserted that the killing of Tut was just a way of soothing Hickok's injured ego and that Bill caught Davis off guard, gunning the man down before he even had a chance to draw. Is this true? I don't know, but there's not really anything to back it up. Hell, Maffey wasn't even born when the shooting took place, and as far as I know, no other eyewitnesses would make similar claims. Also worth noting that Hickok was tried and acquitted. While the jury felt like it was self-defense, many of the citizens of Springfield disagreed. They were appalled that a man could just arm himself and wait for hours in the middle of town square for his intended victim to arrive. As for Hickok, he would later say that there was indeed the undercurrent of a woman involved in that fight. And quote, there was a cause of a quarrel between us which people around here don't know about. One of us had to die and the secret died with him. End quote. This could or could not be hinting at Tut's sister, Susanna Moore, or just both. I don't know. I do know we've mentioned two gunfights now, Davis Tud and David McCandless, and both of them had the so-called undercurrent of a woman. Remember the alleged relationship between Hickok and McCandless's mistress. 
which I reckon means that we ought to go ahead and get something out of the way real quick. According to damn near every source I've found, James Butler Hickok was a bit of a fuckboy with a love life that some compared to both King David and Sir Lancelot. All right, so here goes. Hickok was said to have been six foot one, standing flat-footed in moccasins. Broad-shouldered with a narrow waist, he wore his hair long, parted down the middle. High cheekbones with a thin nose and just an all-around handsome guy. The handsomest physique I had ever witnessed, claimed author George Nichols. Dress-wise, Bill liked to stand out from the crowd. He wore Prince Albert frock coats, boots of the finest calfskin with two-inch heels making him appear even taller. Fancy vests and shirts and oftentimes sporting a bright scarlet sash around his waist. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention what Libby Custer, wife of famous General George Armstrong, had to say about Hickok. Quote, tall, lithe, and free in every motion. He rode and walked as if every muscle was perfection. And the careless swing of his body as he moved seemed perfectly in keeping with the man, the country, and the time in which he lived. I do not recall anything finer in the way of physical perfection than Wild Bill when he swung himself lightly from the saddle and with graceful swaying step, squarely set his shoulders and well-poised head, approached our tent for orders. End quote. Damn, Libby. I think I need a cigarette after just reading that. He was a ginger, by the way. Hickok. Kind of. Auburn in color is the way his hair is often described. Various descriptions will say he had anything from blonde to black hair, but a verified lock taken after his death does back up the Auburn claim. Listen, I'm bringing this up, you know, Hickok's physical description for a few reasons. For one thing, you know, while Bill would remain a bachelor for most of his life, he was rarely without some form of female companionship. By all accounts, the ladies loved them some Wild Bill. But I also bring up his looks because I find them curious. I'm not going to lie, I just don't see it. Look, there are a lot of pictures of Hickok available. And I know as a straight guy, I'm probably not qualified to say this, but... As far as I'm concerned, the man looks like he fell out of an ugly tree and hit every damn branch on the way down. Dude looks like a big, dumb redneck. Uh, no offense to all you big, dumb rednecks out there. But I mean, come on, look at that face. No wonder McCandless called him Duck Bill. But that's okay. This should give some hope to those of you out there who, like me, may not be blessed with the most handsome face. Trust me when I say this, women could give two shits. They don't care about looks like we do, Okay. Case in point, Wild Bill Hickok and Billy the Kid, both said to have been loved by the ladies and both uglier than a baboon's ass. But you know what? They were confident. They had a little bit of swagger, a little bit of game. I'm willing to bet both men could make the ladies laugh a little. All that will get you way further than a chiseled jaw and perfectly formed nose. Also, Hickok was a bit of a clean freak, bathing much more often than was normal on the frontier, and he liked to keep his clothes clean as well. I'm sure that also scored him a few points with the gals, especially at a time when the average man's odor would cause a dog to vomit. Wash your ass, fellas, and powder up them balls. All right, glad we could get that out of the way. Following the killing of Tut, Hickok would remain there in Springfield for a few more months. And it was there where he was interviewed by the guy I keep mentioning, George Ward Nichols, the one who pinned that Harper's new monthly article. I feel like we should touch on this just a bit more as it would really cement Hickok's legendary reputation. In the article, which you can find online, Hickok discusses the killing of both McCandless and Tut. This is where the idea that McCandless was an outlaw leader comes into play and the fantasy of Hickok killing 10 men. The article also has Wild Bill claiming to have killed hundreds of men during the war. Is this possible? 
Uh, I guess. You know, considering the dangerous missions he was conducting, I'm positive he more than likely drew blood. But hundreds is a bit of a stretch, and I will always be skeptical of such inflated body counts. Hickok, toward the end of his life, only laid claim to 36 killings. As far as official records go, we only know of seven of these, with a few probables thrown in. Long story short, while I'm sure there was some truth in that Harper's article, most of it is just fantasy. Nevertheless, it was printed in February of 1867 and quickly made Hickok a household name, launching him to superstardom. According to biographer Joseph Rosa, quote, The article was widely read, creating much interest in the East and even in England where Harper's had a limited circulation. As a result, it became, in fact, Hickok's death warrant. Until his death nine years later, he was besieged by journalists and others. Though eager for more details, few of them were interested in the truth. Hickok became a target for all manner of comment or abuse and was constantly obliged to prove himself the equal of all comers. Small wonder that the man who lived with and tried to play down the legend grew embittered by the cruelties of fate and was far removed from the carefree devil-may-care boy of the Kansas border wars or the scout of the early 1860s. This man's legend, promoted by Nichols, has, down the years, snowballed into monumental size. End quote. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up part one of Wild Bill Hickok. Stick around, though, because we got a lot more ground to cover. In part two, we'll take a look at Hickok's career as a lawman and frontier scout, his stint as an actor, his marriage, and his untimely demise in a little place called Deadwood. And don't worry, I'm not going to make you wait the usual two weeks for the next installment. I will be releasing part two next Wednesday, God willing. If you're a new listener, we recently had a bit of a hiccup here at the Wild West Extravaganza. This episode you just heard was actually slated to be released last week. Unfortunately, I lost my hard drive, all my notes, my research, yada, yada, yada. And I was forced to start this entire Hickok saga over from scratch. You can hear the full story on the last episode I published, Jesse James and the Kid. By the way, how about Lindsey Graham of History Daily stepping in to help out, huh? Big thanks to him for that. And I hope you all enjoyed the stories he shared. I know I did. Lindsay was also kind enough to feature one of my episodes on his History Daily Saturday matinee. So please, if you get a chance, give that a listen. You've probably already heard most of it. It's the uh, episode I did a while back on Annie Oakley. I just spiced it up a little bit. Link in the show notes. All right. So speaking of releasing part two of Wild Bill Hickok next Wednesday, I might as well go ahead and get a bit of housekeeping out of the way. I don't really like deviating from my usual release schedule. You know, anytime I'm late on publishing an episode, I kind of feel like I'm letting you down. That's why I went ahead and dropped this one early on a Monday, and it's why I'm going to work my ass off to get part two out to you next Wednesday. Just my way of saying sorry. If all goes as planned, I've got another little short episode I've been wanting to do scheduled to be released the Wednesday after that. So that'll be three weeks straight with brand spanking new Wild West extravaganza content. After that, though, we are going back to the normal fortnightly releases every other Wednesday. And yeah, I do kind of feel fancy when I use the word fortnightly. I really do want to thank you for sticking with me. It's been a very busy year. Having a baby, having that baby in the hospital, moving, switching jobs, catching COVID, and then to have my hard drive destroyed. That's all right, though. Here at the Wild West Extravaganza, we endeavor to persevere. Now, I know I don't normally put out multi-part episodes, but I think this is something I'm going to play with going forward. Not every episode, but I think some subjects deserve more of a deep dive. 
you know, this way when I'm covering someone like Wild Bill Hickok, I can split it up into a two or three part series and go into much greater detail. Also, you may have noticed the new logo. I'll be honest, it's not exactly what I was looking for, so don't get too attached. For now, it's just going to be kind of a placeholder for a few more months until I can commission a professional to bring my vision, a vision greatly influenced by listener Kai Elliott, to fruition. Thanks again, Kai, by the way. Uh, Kai sent me a really cool sketch up of a logo that I think would be absolutely perfect for this podcast. It's just a matter of me finding somebody to kind of fine tune it. And I actually think I have found that somebody. It's just going to cost me a little bit of dinero. Finally, as many of you are aware, there are a number of episodes of the Wild West extravaganza missing from the feed, like 29 or 30 of them. This was intentional, something I've been meaning to do for a while. And I did it for a few different reasons, a lot of which you've already heard me mention before. You know, when I first started this podcast, I was literally recording myself through the stock voice recorder on my cell phone. I had no idea anybody would ever listen to it, and it was very low effort. But I'd be lying if I said it was the sound quality that really made me want to remove those episodes. Mostly it's the content. The research was shoddy. The delivery was horrendous. I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know what direction I wanted this podcast to go in. And I hadn't really found my own voice. At the time, I had this weird idea that it would be kind of a comedy podcast. That the history would just be a delivery mechanism for my dumbass jokes. But guess what? Daddy ain't no professional comedian. Also, to be perfectly honest, I was drunk off my ass every step along the way. Now, with over two years of sobriety, when I go back and listen to one of those early episodes, it literally makes me sick to my stomach with embarrassment. And even though this podcast is not meant to be listened to in a chronological order, many people, upon discovering a new podcast, will always want to start at the very beginning. That's only natural. And with the Wild West extravaganza, that means they'd have to slog through some very rough, hard-to-listen-to material Material that I don't believe reflects where we are now. And every change I've been making along the way, you know, changing the name, the logo, this most recent change, it is an attempt to draw in new listeners. I really think there's people out there that would enjoy this podcast. They just have to discover it, and I want it to be as discoverable as possible. I know some of you have been listening from the very beginning, back in the Bloody Beaver days. And some of you actually prefer the older style. You may even, God help you, enjoy going back and re-listening to those older episodes. If that's you, don't worry. I have not deleted them from existence. They're still available, just not publicly. If you've really got a burning desire to access that old stuff, you can still do so by either becoming a patron or a paid member on YouTube. And unless you think this is just some money-making scheme, I'm actually losing ad revenue by doing this. And I give you my word, if by some reason you really want to hear that stuff and you're not able to shell out the five bucks, just email me and we'll figure something out. I will find a way to get it to you for free if you truly can't afford it. I promise. As far as the difference between Patreon and the YouTube paid membership goes, uh, I think the only thing that's different is the old Kit Carson series I did is still only available on Patreon. I will link to Patreon in the show notes if you're interested. And on YouTube, you'll see a join option right next to the subscribe button. Now this paid subscriber thing with YouTube is brand new to me, so we'll just see how it goes. If you have any issues with it at all, please email me, josh at wildwestextra.com. Also, as I've been doing with Patreon from the very beginning, I will give 20% of all YouTube membership income to charity. So there you have it, win-win. All right, so other than that, everything is all gravy, baby. I didn't delete those episodes because I dropped too many F-bombs or anything like that. 
Okay, we're still keeping things punk rock around here, and I still retain the right to use words like shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. All right? This podcast is still very much intended for mature audiences only. So don't be bringing your grandkids around here gaying up the joint. With all that said, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to get my voice out there, this creative outlet that allows me to discuss these Old West legends. Please stick around for part two of the Hickok Saga next week and all the other awesome stuff we've got in the works. And if you like what you hear, please share the Wild West extravaganza with friends and enemies alike. I think that's what Hickok would want. Check out my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button while you're there. Don't forget to check out the book section if you're looking for some reading material or possibly a gift idea for a friend or family member. And make sure you're subscribing and following wherever you listen. Till next time, please try not to steal anyone's damn pocket watch. Adios. than a baboon's ass.